everybody. Welcome to Worldview Discussions. This is episode 13. I was just thinking about something the other day. Can you imagine if Americans switched from pounds to kilograms overnight? There would be utter mass confusion. You got to love the minions, man. It's good stuff. So we're we're uh, in our topic of morality in in these episodes right now. Remember, we're thinking through these major topics of origin, meaning, morality, destiny. And in the previous episode, we talked about the standards of morality. I actually don't know if you're aware of this, but in Greenwich, London, at the Royal Observatory. There's this monument that was erected in the 19th century that shows the British Yard, and there are little spokes that come out, and they could put their metal rods in between to get a good good measurement, a standard measurement of a British Yard of two feet. It's really interesting. And I use that as an illustration often to think about what standard are we using when we critique the actions of other people. I think that's what we talked about last time, is that we all do this. And so the question is, what gives us the right to be able to do this? It seems like we need an objective standard in order to be able to critique anyone's actions as being right or wrong. And I'm, I'm interested in looking into scripture and seeing what does scripture say about morality, and does it represent this concept of of objective morality somehow. And if you remember back a few episodes ago, we talked about how humans are made in God's image and they are to represent God. And I think we have right in there the beginning of an explanation. So they're not representing their ideas or standards. They're representing God's. But I think we can go even further with it. So... If you remember, we've talked about morality reflecting how one fulfills their purpose. And so I'm, I'm interested in thinking uh, about these ideas and looking at Genesis 2 and 3 and seeing how did Adam and Eve fulfill their image-bearing purpose to represent God um, or how did they fail at, at that. So... What I, what I thought I would start with is just reading in Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. And so let me read a couple passages here, and I'll unpack some of these ideas with you guys. In Genesis 2, 8 and 9, we read, And the Lord planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put a man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant for the sight and good for food. Isn't that interesting? Pleasant to the sight and good for food. Remember those words. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Later on in Genesis 3, at the beginning, we read, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, and, and guys, I, I'm just going to leave that whole 
issue of a serpent talking to the woman. I'm going to leave that on the side. We're not even going to touch that in this episode. I just don't have time. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst, or you could translate it middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Or you could translate it, you will be like the Elohim, knowing good and evil. So that when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew, ah, they gained wisdom, right? Oh boy, they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. All right, so here's some things I want to highlight for uh, you guys. And I'll, I'll just use the, the four context method that I usually use. So let's kick off with the reader's context. Remember, this is thinking about the, the bags that we pack when we open up scripture. So I just thought I'd highlight a couple questions that you guys might have. I hear these quite a bit. First off, how can one tree cause so many problems? I mean, what are we doing here with this tree... Of course, we don't know, apple tree, olive tree, we don't know. But how can one tree cause so many problems? I think that's a valid question to ask. And, and we read this in our 21st century scientific ways of thinking about things. And I get why that's a problem for people. Another question, how can fruit be desirable to make one wise? I mean, are we making a claim here that there's some kind of vitamin in this fruit that was going to up Adam and Eve's IQ to this level that would have been amazing. Or is it simply that because God said, don't eat it, then it made him want to eat it, right? Is it because it was off limits, then it became desirable? Is that what's going on there? And... Why did God even make a tree he knew would cause so much suffering? I bet you've heard that one before. You, you might have asked that one before. You know, it. for some people, it's kind of like a scenario where you make these amazing chocolate chip cookies and a nice glass of milk, and you put it in front of this little kid, and you say, don't eat. No, no, no. And there's something off about that. And I think... It's right for people to say, that doesn't seem like that lines up with the God of the Bible. So what's going on here? All right. So just setting some things up a little bit, because I really want to take a lot of time unpacking some terms in the text. So let's move on to historical context. And historical context is, remember, getting a passport into that world. It's always a good reminder that this text was not written to us. So 
how do I how do I get into this world? I'm I'm a citizen of the modern world. I I just don't think the way they did back then. So this is a good reminder that um, it's ancient literature, and what we need to do is we need to situate ourselves in that world. So a quick little survey. There are actually lots of examples of Egyptian, Babylonian, and Sumerian texts where there's sacred trees giving life, uh, gods showing up as snakes. It's really, really interesting. And, and uh, also, in the ancient Near East, trees were often connected with sacred space uh, and temples and the presence of the gods. And interestingly, just fast forward in the biblical text, and when the tabernacle is constructed in Exodus, when they're at Mount Sinai, there's all this garden imagery of fruit and trees and cherubim are there, uh, precious metals that are, of course, found in, in the garden. So we're, we're dealing with, here's the point, Genesis 2 through 3 clearly fits in the world and vocabulary of the ancient Near East. It would have been very understandable to them. Even the talking serpent, believe it or not. <laughs> um, and, and one final point to make about historical context, and I, I find this to be really important, is when I'm reading Genesis 2 through 3, I need to remember that the audience is Israel. It's not us. And so this is a story about Israel's history, about Israel's origins. This, is, this was not written to Adam and Eve, right? This was written long after Adam and Eve. And this was written for Israel. It, it offers a claim, sure, about all humanity, but the original audience matters. Let me quote here from John Walton in his book, The Lost World of Adam and Eve. He says, the motifs and themes used in Genesis 2 through 3 are hardly arbitrary. Instead, the story includes concepts familiar to people in the ancient world. The inspired storyteller is speaking to Israel and is prompted by the Spirit to use imagery that would communicate clearly in that world, dealing with issues that were current in that society. We do not have an account that is portrayed as being conveyed to Adam and Eve. It is an account about Adam and Eve being conveyed to the Israelites. So I think that's really important to make that point. And I think that helps adjust our, our expectations as we read it. So two down, two contexts to go. Let's talk about literary context for a little bit. And I got nine minutes. We can do this, people. Remember, literary context is thinking about, how do I read it? It's thinking about the text and saying, what are the instructions for this kind of genre? What kind of literature am I reading? Remember, the goal is to understand what the author is trying to communicate to the original audience based on the world that that audience lived in. So these stories... Uh, really importantly, these stories are critiques of ancient Near Eastern cultural mythologies. This language was around at that time, and 
some of these stories predate when Genesis 2 through 3 was written. That's also really important. And so I think that that really solidifies this idea that Genesis 2 through 3, as it's trying to give an interpretation about human history, it's very much offering a polemic against these other cultures at that time, Egypt, Samaria, Babylon, Assyria. It's making a critique of those, and we've got to remember that. All right, so let's talk about these two trees. There's the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And instead of diving into the details of specific verses, I'm going to be a little generic here so I can hopefully get in a lot of info. As we think about the verses around in Genesis 2 and 3 and even chapter 1, Genesis 1 through 2 has temple language all over it. There's trees and rivers. There's idols being made, remember, humanity. There's a, a mountain that's being described where rivers are coming down out of this mountain, which was classic temple understanding in the ancient Near East. You always put temples on top of mountains, high places. There are heavenly creatures hanging out there, and of course, God's presence is there. So this is temple language. And so I think that when I read about a tree of life, I think this tree is trying to communicate the idea of being in God's presence. When you are in God's presence, that's life. That is life. And to eat of the tree is to be in God's presence. Let me say that again. To eat of the tree is to be in God's presence. What's, of course, going to happen to Adam and Eve later on? They're going to be removed from the garden so that they no longer eat of this tree that God wanted them to eat of. God wants humanity to be his, his presence, um, in his presence, as his representatives for his purposes. And what we're going to see here, the problem, is humanity is going to try to use God for their own purposes. So, the tree of life, I think, is a representation of the, the blessings that come with being in God's presence. And you can just unpack that throughout Scripture and see, even Jesus starts talking about eternal life. And, of course, eternal life is going to be wrapped up with, with being with God, being in, in relationship with God for eternity. The tree of life is also connected with wisdom. And wisdom is a really big deal, actually, in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And I find it interesting that we just really don't talk about Genesis 1, 2, and 3 in, in these terms. Notice Eve uh, noticed that eating the fruit would make her wise. <laughs> and, and that's really strange. How can, a, how can a fruit make someone wise? And one of the questions I have is, wait a minute, God, are you holding out on them? Don't you want them to be wise? And I think there's actually numerous references in Proverbs that can help us out with this. And, and I think it's connecting to this garden story and, and provides some helpful commentary. In Proverbs 3, verse 18, wisdom is called a tree of life. In Proverbs 3, 5 
6 and 7, we're called to trust in the Lord, to lean not on our own understanding, to not be wise in our own eyes. Fear the Lord, turn from evil. And in Proverbs 2, 6, it says the Lord wants to give wisdom to the upright. So God, God clearly wants to give wisdom. He's not holding out. And there's a natural result to walking in God's wisdom. It's going to lead to long life. So walking in God's wisdom and, and long life, eternal life, two sides of the same coin, they're kind of wrapped up together. And of course, rejecting God's wisdom, well, what's, what happens there? That leads to exile and death, which of course happens with Adam and Eve. So I don't think God wants to withhold wisdom. He wants to give it to him. Uh, what he doesn't want is humanity leaning on their own understanding. And I think that that's what's going on with Adam and Eve. So that actually moves us to the other tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is the one God doesn't want them to eat from. Uh, so why did God make it then? And again, I think we're reminded of the, the issue. What is the author trying to communicate about humanity? And I think if we go that route, we start to maybe answer or look for questions, sorry, have questions and find answers that the author is interested in in giving us. Sometimes the author of the Bible is not interested in answering the questions we have, which is frustrating. So, the knowledge of good and evil. This phrase, knowing good and evil, is actually found in numerous places in the Old Testament to refer to children who need to grow and mature in nature. Here's one example in Deuteronomy 1 verse 39. As for your little ones who said you would become a prey and your children, sorry, I'm going to read that again. As And as for your little ones who you said would become a prey and your children who today have no knowledge of good and evil, they shall go in there and to them I will give it and they shall possess it. So you have little children who have no knowledge of good and evil. There's actually numerous texts like that where it's referring to little children who have to mature. And so if you look at the details in Genesis 1 through 2, this idea of good and evil, who's the one all along who's been saying what is good and not good? And that's God. God's been saying creation is good many times. And it was not good in Genesis 2 that man is alone. So it seems pretty clear that God is the one who is uh, presenting the standard of what is good and not good. And so when Eve sees the fruit of the tree as desirable to make her wise, she's attempting to join the ranks of God and his divine counsel who define good and evil. This is why I think it says that in Genesis 3.22, God says, They have now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. So, um, I, in other words, I think the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is representing this idea that we can acknowledge, Adam and Eve can acknowledge, that God has set the standards of what is right and wrong, of what is good and evil. He defines that he is the standard. His nature is the standard. And I think by Adam and Eve eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, 
I think it's trying to represent this idea that they, and you and I, are, are susceptible to defining good and evil ourselves. I, th I think that's what's going on with, with what's happening with them eating of this, the fruit of this tree. Interestingly, if you fast forward to the end of the Bible, the, the story of the Bible ends with the tree of life showing up in the new heaven and earth. And again, I, I think this is representing God's presence. Eternal life is available to all who walk in God's wisdom and finally represent God in his Im as his image bearers and, and rule the way God wanted Adam and Eve to rule. And I find it interesting that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is absent. It's not there. And I wonder if that means that humanity now, in its glorified state, is seeking after God's wisdom and no longer seeing the fruit of the tree, of that other tree, as being worth taking. I mean, that would be the kind of world that uh, I'd love to live in. And one day, one day we will. So, wrapping things up, I think Genesis 2 through 3 presents a picture of God being the one who creates an objective standard of morality, of right and wrong. And these trees represent the choice that we as humans have if, if we're going to define good and evil ourselves, if we're going to be wise in our own eyes, or if we're going to acknowledge our Creator. Uh, as, as Paul said in Romans 1, he, he gives a commentary, I think, on Adam and Eve when he says, Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And so God gave them up to the lusts of their impurities. And they, it's because in verse 25 of chapter 1, Paul says, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. So let me leave you with the end of Romans. Paul says in Romans 16, 19, For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. And he says, But I want you to be wise as to what is good, and innocent to what is evil. <laughs>